crack that Bible right down the center. You should be in Psalms. Go to Psalm 73. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a, a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. Just grab that. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. We would like you to fall in love with Jesus through the scriptures. So please keep that. Mark it up. That's your Bible now. Psalm chapter 73. When I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, all right. When you get to Psalm 73, look up to me. Looks like most of us are there. Say, he is alive. He's still alive. It's not just for Easter. Amen. All right. I'm reading through the whole thing, so have your eyes on Scripture. Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may may tell of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're glad you're here with us as we are continuing in our series um, looking through the book of Psalms. And um, our objective really as we're looking through the book of Psalms is this sort of tagline. We're learning to express our emotions biblically. And um, last week we looked at fear and anxiety um, in the book of Psalms. And uh, we just got a lot of feedback and a lot of confirmation that um, this is the word and this is sort of the season that God has for us. And as we've looked through the book of Psalms, one of the things that we talked about last week was is that the book of Psalms is written by um, a majority of authors, but if anything that we see first and foremost, it's an ancient book of poetry, but what we see in it is raw human emotion. Um, it's almost like if you turn on an Adele song on the radio, like, you know, Adele and Taylor Swift seem to have a lot of relationship problems, if you will, right? Uh, they never tend to have that boyfriend for a long period of time. And I'd be really weary to date Taylor Swift thinking, I'm going to be her next hit single, right? About how she broke up with me or something like that. And what we see in the book of Psalms is something very similar to that, is um, they're expressing their emotions through this particular type of language. And the tagline that we said is, is that the book of Psalms is like God gave us our words, our words in a book for us to express our emotions because we are emotional beings created in his image and likeness. And oftentimes maybe you grew up in a home where you just didn't talk about emotions, you bottled those things up, no confrontation, no awkwardness, we're not going to discuss this at the dinner table. Or maybe you grew up in a home where it was like emotions were flying all over the place, man, right? Or maybe you married into one of those families and you're like, oh, this is weird, you know? And so basically what I'm saying is most of the time we don't learn in a healthy way to express our emotions, and, and today is, is a particular emotion that's overlooked oftentimes, 
And if it's addressed, it's addressed sort of in like a shameful way. Like nobody really ever wants to admit this emotion. And I remember the very first time distinctly that I felt this emotion that I could remember. Um, It was 1997. And Ken Griffey Jr. was one of the greatest baseball players at the time. One of the most beautiful swings in baseball history to ever swing the bat. I will not debate this, thus saith the Lord. And um, Ken Griffey Jr. released the Ken Griffey Jr. Air Max 1s, which is this photo here. And um, I'm a tennis shoe guy, whatever. Some of you guys have boats. I have tennis shoes, okay? So don't judge me, all right? And so um, I love tennis shoes, and I remember all Christmas, like leading up to Christmas, doing the thing, like cutting out the East Bay magazine. I don't even know if you guys remember East Bay. But like it would come in the mail, and I would like highlight circle. I would put those pages everywhere in the house. And Christmas morning rolls around. I remember getting so excited. And my last present, I open up. And to my horror and dismay, I did not receive a pair of Ken Griffey Air Max One shoes. And so my whole world was shattered. And I remember going home and, and, and thinking, uh, maybe it's going to be at Grandma's house. And they weren't at Grandma's house. And so I spent all Christmas break just moping around and thinking, like, I don't even know how I can go to school. Like, I don't even know how I can show up at school not wearing these shoes right now. Because everybody in the world has these shoes on, right? And then I remember being there, standing in line for school to start there in Kennett Middle School. And I remember Ben Foster getting out of his mom's car, walking up to me. And I couldn't see much, but what I could see was his feet. And on his feet were the Ken Griffey Air Max once. And I just thought, I might steal his shoes, right? <laughs> In PE, I might steal his shoes. In the locker room, I might, I might do this. And for the very, very first time in my life, I remember feeling green with envy, if you will. Um, I thought, I want, and all day long, like every time I saw him in the lunchroom, I just remember looking down, being like, those should be on my feet, right? And in reality, I say that just to be funny, but at the surface, that's kind of sort of what envy is. But, but in reality, we think of that as like a kid thing. But like, let's be honest, adults in the room, envy doesn't ever really go away, right? Like, even now, like nowadays with like social media, right? Like you see a family post a picture on Instagram or on Facebook, and the first thing you think is, well, look at their perfect family. Oh, they got to go on vacation? Ooh, right? Or you see the guy drive through town and he waves at you and he sends you a text message. You see my new truck, man? You're like, yeah, I saw your new truck, bro. I may slash your tires or something, but yeah, I saw your new truck, right? Or somebody invites you over to their new house for a housewarming party, and the whole time you're walking around going, I just can't believe that, right? In reality, that's, that's envy at its core. And I think today to help us to start out with this, we, we, we need a proper definition of what envy is. And so this is what envy is. Envy is the feeling of discontentment, or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or advantages in life. And like, this is true. But, but here's what's interesting about envy. Like, there's a particular type of shame that comes with envy when you feel this emotion. Because like, Many of us, like, yeah, sure, I got caught lying or, 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 or cheating or I was angry and I sinned. And, like, many of us are okay about that. But to be called on the carpet for envy is something that's, like, just almost kind of makes us feel gross, you know. And, and, and the best way to really see envy, like, ladies, I'm just going to be honest with you. Y'all are mean. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you in the room. So if you've ever seen like in in a mall or something, two women walk by each other, here's what they do. 
They like keep walking, right? It's all it's like this like look up and down, like I need to assess this. Or like if another girl goes to another girl's wedding, right? Oh, that was on Pinterest like five years ago. Right? Right? And 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 in reality, what you're doing is you're sitting there going, they have this, and I either think that I deserve this or I want this. And, and okay, maybe, maybe you're in the room and you're like the church person and you're like, well, Brother Jason, I just I gave it to the Lord. I just don't struggle with envy. Okay, um, uh, there's a guy, a doctor who, uh, Dr. Les Carter wrote a book and he's actually a psychiatrist on envy. And um, he has some particular questions. And these questions will offend everyone in the room, which I love moments like these. These are the best, okay? So, um, and, and, and it's sort of like heart questions, if you will, to, to ask yourself. Because in the reality, when we think about things like this, we think about them just being at the surface. And really what we do is we blame the other person, right? We blame the other person for that. But very rarely, listen, here's what society never does. Society never goes, yeah, I'm the problem. I'm the problem here, right? We always blame the problem on someone else. So, so, so here are a couple of questions just to examine our heart. The first one is this. Do you examine others constantly with a critical eye? So you go to someone's house and you're like, they put that there. Horrible decision, right? Or they're wearing that. Or he did this and he went there. Is it always kind of like a, like a critique? Like, and, and, and here's where we cover it up. We cover it up with things like this. I'm just saying. Right? The famous phrase, just saying. And, and in reality, what you're doing is, is you're critical of constantly everything around you. Or how about this question? Do you complain about not getting fair treatment? Fair treatment. I hear this all the time when, when I hear people talk about the government and talk about welfare and talk about food stamps and, you know, and saw somebody checking out in line and they had all kinds of stuff and it was just a bunch of food stamps and here I am paying for my groceries. And you know what ended that for me about complaining about all of that? It's, it's, it's real hard to complain about welfare when you realize you live on God's welfare. Is that too early for the nine? Should I wait, save that stuff for later? Save that stuff for later on. But it's always the, the, the fair type of treatment, right? Well, they get to do that. They get to do that. Why don't I get to do that? Okay. How, uh, how about this one? Do you need a lot of recognition for your achievements? <laughs> Guys, this is us, right? Right? You empty the dishwasher once. And you think you need a parade. Like, you literally think, like, she comes home, and, and you're constantly hinting, like, is there anything that I can help you with? Probably not the dishwasher, because I did that earlier. <laughs> right? Notice the washer and dryer, they're empty, babe. You know what I mean? And Courtney's response to me is always, yeah, that just needed to get done. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, a parade would have been great. You know what I mean? <laughs> how, uh, how about this one? Um, do you keep score of good deeds? Keep score of good deeds? Well, I'm not going to do this this time because they clearly didn't recognize the last four times that I did blank. And so in your mind, you have sort of like a tally mark type of a thing. And like, this is a, listen, this is a great way to drive your marriage into the ground, right? Is, well, I've done three nice things for her and she hasn't done any nice things for me. So I'm not going to do any more nice things until a nice thing gets done for me. That's, that's envy creeping in there. Or how about this one? Are you willing to pass along negative rumors about a successful person? Oh, I hear this all the time in a small town. Drive by, you know, you're driving around with somebody and you see a nice house and go, hey, do you know so-and-so lives there? I, I had no idea they live there. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know how they got the house? Right? I mean, am I, am I lying this morning or, or am I preaching this morning here, Right? It's, it's, it's a lot easier whenever you see somebody that has something and then your first response is not to be grateful for what they have and go praise God for their hard work and praise God for the things that they have. But in reality, I'll tell you how they cut corners to get that because 
deep down inside, it gives me a lot of affirmation to pull everybody else down on my level. That's envy. And envy is listed as a blatant sin through all out scripture. And I think it's one that we highly overlook. But do you know what I love about Psalm 73 in our context and in our passage today? Psalm 73 is written by a guy named Asaph. And we learn about Asaph in 2 Chronicles and in the book of Nehemiah. Asaph was known back in the Old Testament as a seer. And uh, basically, he was a worshiper of God. He, he led the people in anthems of worship through um, uh, ceremonies there in the temple and everything like that. And, and he was highly sought after at the king. So what the seers would do is, if the king had to go off into battle, or if there was a major decision to be made, then the, see, the king would go to the seer, and the seer would inquire of God and give the king advice. So listen, Asaph is a lover of God and a worshiper of God. Like Asaph has all the Awanas awards on his sash, okay? Like he's a good little kid, all right? But what Asaph is writing about in Psalm 73 is envy. And he confesses that in verse 2. He says, I was envy. But look at your Bible. Do you see, I'm sorry, in verse 3. Do you see who he's envious of? Have your eyes on scripture. For I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Like, here's what I love about the Bible. And here's what I love about how honest it is. Like, oftentimes we detach the Bible and make it like a textbook or something in that these guys were like robots just writing down Scripture. They didn't feel any emotion. They weren't any human beings. Here's what Asaph is doing. Asaph literally works at a church, modern-day terms, is a church guy, and is confessing that he is envious of listening, of listening, watching the wicked in the world prosper. Have you ever felt that? Like, have you ever seen Hugh Hefner get out of a limo with 17 gorgeous women and all of this money and all of these things and go, so he's living a rough life? Like when you see these men with all of this money and all of this lifestyle, these people who literally make a living off profaning the name of God and the word of God and literally have everything at their disposal in life. Like don't leave a preacher alone up here right now. Have you ever looked at that and thought, bro, I'm trying to follow Jesus. Blessed are the humble Yeah, that's good on paper, but that ain't going to help me climb the ladder at my workplace, man. Like, this thing is difficult. And I love what Asaph does is he's honest with his emotions. And he looks at the wickedness of the world. And he says, God, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to literally, like in modern day terms, I'm trying to have like a biblical foundation for my marriage. I'm trying to lead my wife, lead my husband, and do all of these things. And I feel like my marriage is worse than my friends who aren't even Christians. This is difficult. So what are we to do about this? How serious actually is envy in your life? And it's probably something that you're unaware of. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says this, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's serious. Listen to me, God's word says this, If you have envy in your life, If you have envy in your life and you do not address this sin, it will rot your life from the inside out. And it's something that's so overlooked. And it's emotion that we feel often. And often what we do is we just play it off. We just play it off like, oh, that's just who I am. Or that's just an emotion. I'll get on with it. Or for some of us, envy even drives our life, right? We try to keep up with the Joneses. Like, I don't even know who the Joneses are. I've never met them. You know what I mean? But we're all trying to keep up with who they are, you know? And so some of you guys are just living a life and, 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 and the name and the image and 
the prominent house and the prominent position and the lifestyle and you have hopes and aspirations that your kids go to a certain college and marry a certain person with a last name so then you can carry this on and what you think is that it's hard work and ethics driving that but in reality what it is is it's envy because you aspire to what other people have in your life. So what are we supposed to do about this? Psalm 73 is broken up in two ways. We're going to see two main points and then three things under the main points. Are you confused yet? Two things and three things under the two things. You got it? Are we ready? Okay. But here's how it starts, okay? Here's the birth of envy. This is how the text starts. The birth of envy. Look at verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel. Many commentators believe that that was like a creed in the Old Testament. Almost like a greeting that you would have towards one another. Like, hey, how are you? Or, you know, truly God is good to Israel. But in my, in my Bible, the way that it's written, um, I, I put a question mark at the end of Israel. I just wrote my Bible. Because he's saying that almost in a doubtful way. Like, tr- truly God is good to Israel, I guess. And then it says, to those who are pure in heart. But here it is, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. Verse 3, for I was envious, there's the word, of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3 starts with uh, the word for. You could also translate that with because. So what it's doing, listen, we're going to study the Bible today, okay? You're going to have your eyes on Scripture God forbid you look at your Bible in church and have to do a little work, okay? So verse 3 starts with the word for, which is a link. If you're an English teacher, it's linking an idea together, right? So really the main idea, because I was envious of the arrogant, why? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Listen, envy starts with comparison. Envy starts with comparison. Asaph was looking out at the life of a group of people, the people who were not lovers of God, which is what the Old Testament often calls wicked, right? The Old Testament is not politically correct. Nowadays, we're all like, we're all God's children. And I'm always like, then who does God hate in the Psalms? You know what I mean? Like constantly, it's like the wicked, the wicked. And what he's saying is, I looked at the people that didn't love God or love the ways of God or love God's word, and I saw everything that they had, and they were prosperous. And actually, look at your Bible, verses 4 through 12 are all poetic descriptions of the life of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Some of you are like, I like that description. I'm going to use that about myself, right? Right? I'm not big bone. I'm just kind of fat and sleek at the same time, right? What that means is is, is that they were like healthy, right? They were healthy. And what he's saying is there are some people who love God who are working hard, and, and, and who are not healthy. So literally he devotes, look at this, from verses 4 through 12, a majority of the psalm, he's literally watching and describing everything. Listen, listen, don't miss this. He's describing everything that they have and everything that he does not have. That's comparison. And write this down. Comparison is the enemy of contentment. You will never be satisfied in your life when you are constantly focusing on what you do not have and focusing on what other people have. Always. It's, well, they're married. She finally found a husband. They finally got that house. He finally got the promotion. He got this. And, and, and actually, do you know what's at the center? You would never say this because you think you're so focused on them. You think you're so focused, remember our definition, on someone's advantages, possessions, and everything else that they have in life. And actually what you think is you're very focused on them. But on reality, you're focused on yourself. You're at the key of all of this. So the enemy of of, of contentment is always going to be comparison. It's just like Andy, Grace, and Roman in our house. Listen, if you want to start World War III at our house, bring over one cupcake. 
bring over one toy. Bring over one sucker and watch my kids look like animals in that moment, right? Because they got something and now I didn't get something. And there's a reason why there's never peace and satisfaction and longing in your life is because you're constantly comparing to someone else. And like, listen, this is true. Courtney and I found this out even when we had kids. Like, like God forbid you have a healthy baby that sleeps through the night. Because people will take that out on you. You know that, right? People will be like, Psh, you sleeping any at night? And we were blessed and had good kids. And we were like, uh... Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're doing okay. And then here's what people will go, Psh, just give it a couple weeks. <laughs> and, and then finally I got to the point of like, I'm sorry your life's not happy, but don't project that on me, man. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's always constantly you try to drag people down in that moment because you'll never be content when you're constantly comparing to other people. Comparison starts, enemy starts with comparison, and then the next thing is this, comparison leads to doubt. Comparison leads to doubt, because that's in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. Now, remember, this is a poem, right? We have to read the Bible literarily, right? So you're in the book of Psalms, this is poetry, So oftentimes people, you know, are like ironclad and they forget what they're actually reading. And there's oftentimes descriptions of God. Like when Jesus says, I am the door. Well, is he hanging on hinges somewhere? Right? No. And in Revelation when John says, I turned and I saw a bloody lamb upon the altar, which was the Son of God. So do you, like, like, like. Like, people think that Revelation, ironclad, it's literal, brother. Okay, so do you think when you get to heaven, Jesus is a bloody lamb who's going to, like, whittle up to you, right? No, they're using poetic language to describe something to you. And so when it says that my feet almost stumbled, that's a poetic term for walking in a correct path of life. Remember in Deuteronomy when Moses says, do not veer to the left and do not veer to the right, but the statues of God will keep you in the middle. What the psalmist is saying, listen, don't don't miss this. When I started comparing, and when I started looking at what I was supposed to believe in, and the way that I was supposed to live, and I looked at people that did not believe that, and I looked at their life, listen, I almost doubted my faith. I almost doubted, why am I even doing what I'm doing? And really the key is, look, in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant. Now here it is. When I saw, when I saw, his eyes saw something. Now listen, don't miss this. This is so great. So God is good. Oh, it's the 9 a.m. Maybe the 11 a.m. will respond a little better. I'll give you another chance at that, right? God is good. Why don't you go home and turn on the news? Why don't you watch a little baby over in the Middle East who was going grocery shopping with his mom and then some idiot coward set off a bomb in a car and killed him? God is good. But when you see things like that, like, listen, don't get churchy with me in here, man. Listen, I want to be real about this because the Scriptures are real. There are times when we know that God is good, but when we see things with our own eyes, it makes us doubt. Because, listen, this is when doubt happens. Doubt happens when what you know clashes with what you see in real life and reality. Like oftentimes, oftentimes this is an argument for unbelievers, right? Because unbelievers see people go to church every Sunday. They see that guy who's a business owner. And then they go to that guy who claims to be a Christian and is a business owner. And then that guy is as shysty as the day is long in his business. And that guy walks out of that business going, What I know? And what I saw, that's causing some doubts for me. 
And I believe that there's like really a, 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 deeply, a deeply theological, profound movie that, that, that we can understand this in, and, and it's Disney's Frozen. Okay? And I know what some of you parents are doing right now. You're like, Jason, just one hour I don't want to mention Frozen, or I don't want to sing the song, or I don't want to deal with this. Well, listen, it's just cursed, okay? It's just cursed. Andy Grace prays often for long hair like Elsa, okay, right? She's just, God, give me long hair like Elsa, okay? But in Disney's Frozen, Elsa has these magical powers, right, to freeze things and do all of this stuff. And some of you fundamentalists are like, that's witchcraft and wizardry. Okay, yeah, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? That's witchcraft too, and you read your kids Snow White's and the Seven Doors, okay? So anyway, right, so here we go. And so she has these magical powers, and she accidentally zaps her sister Anna. And the king and the queen take them to the magical trolls, right? And, 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 and my favorite character in all the movies, the guy that's always overlooked, and it's the ancient troll. And they take her to the, to the troll, and the king says she's been zapped with the power. And then the troll says, was she born with the powers or was she cursed with them? And he says she was born with them. And then he asked this, and listen, listen to your kids' movies, man. Listen to this. There's gospel implications everywhere. The troll says this, where was she zapped? And he says she was zapped in the head. And the troll says this, ah, better the head than the heart. The head can be convinced, but the heart is not so easily changed. You didn't even know that was in your kids' movies, right? Right? Because why? Our head can be convinced. Our head can be convinced. When we're constantly turning on the news, when we're constantly listening to those people in our life who are breathing negativity into our life. Why do you think the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Of your mind. There's a battle that's taking place. But when comparison leads to doubt, it's because you're focusing on what you're seeing and that's clashing with what you know. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist is saying, I was doing fine until I went out into the real world. And listen, parents, listen to me. This is what happens when your kids go off to college. Parents, listen to me. If you keep your kids in a bubble... And you, and, and you don't talk to them about bad things in the world, and you don't explain things, and you shelter things from them, and then they go off to college, and they encounter a new type of worldview. That's why oftentimes statistics always show that kids leave the faith when they go off to college because they realized that their faith never dealt with real-life questions in their life. Their parents gave them answers like, just pray about it. Or it'll be okay. And literally what they're doing is they're seeing what Asaph saw. I know this to be true, but what I see in my life, comparison leads to doubt. And then doubt can lead to a very dangerous place. Doubt leads to despair. Doubt leads to despair. Look in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. (laughs) Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what Asaph is saying? This thing's a joke, man. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Listen, I've obeyed the rules. I've sought God with my own heart. I was legit on my taxes. I'm honest when I punch the time clock. I don't lie to my wife. I don't do any of these things. And look at how this is paid off. And I've done all of this in vain. This is a waste of time. And listen, doubt can lead to despair. I'm not saying that it always leads to despair. But listen, if you don't doubt your doubts, it will lead you there. It will lead you there. And despair is a very dangerous place to be. Despair is always the answer to this. The guy who was a great guy, wife and kids, worked the job, honest, never did anything crazy, nothing, stand-up guy. Then all of a sudden, 
divorces his wife, leaves his kids, runs off with some girl, and everybody goes, man, I never saw that coming. That doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a progression to that. And when you get to the moment of despair, those are, that's a dangerous place to be in. And do you know how serious envy actually is? I was reading a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, who's an old dead guy that you don't care about. But Jonathan Edwards was uh, one of the greatest minds that America ever produced. And he was the father of the first great awakening, the founder of Yale College. And in his sermon on envy, he talks about how serious it is. And he compares Adam and Eve in the garden. Think about this. Adam and Eve had everything. Think about this. Everything. They had a perfect world. Listen to this. There were no mosquitoes and chiggers. Praise be to God. Right? Mosquitoes and chiggers are a result of sin, and I will say that to my grave. Okay, right? Like, I mean, like it was perfect. Everything was perfect. They had everything. They had everything. And listen, God gave them every tree, every domain to everything in the garden. But God said, this is mine, to institute choice, right? Which is always funny. Everybody always focuses on what God told them not to do. You know, it's, it's, it's always like when I counsel, like, premarital counseling or dating couples and, like, the issue of sex come up. And it's always like, it's always like a bunch of rules and don'ts, right? Well, think about this. How many trees were there in the garden? I don't know. But God only told them not to partake in one. So that means God's permission far outweighs his restriction. And you're selfish for focusing on what you can't have rather than what God's always given you. That's for free. That wasn't even in my notes. So take that, right? But they had everything. Everything. Then the enemy comes along. He asks one question. Did God really say? Did he? And then Eve fumbles over her words because Adam was a passive wimp, all right? You know, if your wife's ever having a conversation with Satan, you should intervene, guys. Okay, I'm just saying. And then Satan says this. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree. Now, here it is. Here it is. Here's the moment. Because when you do, he knows you'll be like him. And Jonathan Edwards says, envy was birthed in the garden because Adam and Eve then became envious of who? God. And this is your fundamental problem in life. This is my money, not yours. This is my dating life, not yours. This is my time and my schedule, not yours. And any time that God comes in and says, this is my good created order and this is the way in which this should work, anger rises up in your heart because you are envious of God because you want to be God. And then now look in the world in which we live in. Broken, shattered, and dismayed. All because of envy. Because they were focusing on what they couldn't have rather than everything that God had given them. This is the birth of envy. Envy starts with comparison. Comparison leads to you doubting why you're doing what you're doing. And then doubt will lead to despair. And despair is a very dangerous place. And to sum it up, listen, this is how serious envy is. Envy will steal every bit of joy in your life. Every bit of joy. Your marriage will never be satisfying if you're constantly reading Nicholas Sparks going, why isn't my marriage like that? Right? If you're watching The Bachelor expecting your husband to fly in some food and eat under a waterfall, your marriage will never survive. You better eat T.O.'s and walk around Walmart for a few minutes and see if you love each other. Right? Because we only got a few more minutes and then we're going to have to pay the babysitter extra. You know what I mean? Right? It will never satisfy. And it will constantly steal the joy from your life. And listen, if you're a believer in Christ, look at me. 
If you're a believer in Christ and you're walking your relationship with Jesus and you're constantly looking at your friends who do not love Jesus and you say, look at all the free time they have. Like, can I be honest with you? I'm just going to be real honest with you as a minister right now. You know what I would love to do some weekends? I would love to just send a text message to the board and say, hey, you know what? We're not showing up Sunday. Me and the family, we're just going to go to the river and hang out. You guys got it taken care of. Can I just be honest as a minister? That would be very easy to do because I'm constantly comparing and looking at other things in my life. So how do we end this? If this is this serious in our life, how do we end this? If it's going to steal every bit of joy in our life, how do we end this? Well, this is the death of envy. We saw the birth of envy. Envy starts with comparison. Comparison leads to doubt, and doubt can lead to despair. But now look in verse 16. This is where the text changes, okay? Do you see it? What's the first word in verse 16? Just say it out loud. But, right? When, but, right? It's a change in the text. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. There's a change here. The psalmist has done something to refocus his image and to refocus his eyes into something that is right. And the first thing is this. Envy ends where the gospel begins. Envy ends where the gospel begins. You should be asking, Jason, where do you get that from in the text? We'll look in verse 17. Where did he go? The sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The sanctuary of God. Again, this is Old Testament where we're at, right? So, so in, in the Old Testament, Asaph would have went into the sanctuary. He would have went into the temple. Which, number one, tells me that the gathering is important, right? That when you get around other believers, that there's something that takes place. But what would he have seen? We talked about it last week. He would have seen the sacrifices. He would have seen animals getting their throats slit and then the priests splashing blood upon the altars as a symbolism and, and, and as a foreshadow as to what the gospel is to come. And, and, and what's interesting is, is, is that he goes into the sanctuary for something that's outside himself. Asaph doesn't say, I just need a little quiet time. I just need a little quiet time with the Lord, right? I just, Brother Jason, I can just stay at home and I can drink my cup of coffee and I can watch Joel Olstein and his good hair and his white teeth and it just, just makes me feel good. I have church at my house. Well, no you don't, Okay. Right? The Bible speaks that you have to gather with the saints, okay? But Jesus actually speaks about this. In Mark chapter 7, this is, I found this so interesting. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus speaks about the issue of sin. And here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. Look at this. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, the Greek word pornoneia, which is where we get all types of explicit sexuality outside of a man and a woman. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus mentions envy in the same list as he does sexual immorality and murder, right? So please do away with your self-righteousness of, I only tell a few little white lies here and there, right? Because that's all in the same list. But listen, what's the problem? Where, where do these come out of? The heart. They come out of the heart. Listen, your problem is not outside of you. Your problem is inside of you. Listen, listen. You don't lie, and then that makes you a liar. You're a liar. That's why you lie. Do you understand the difference? And what Jesus says is, if the problem is inside of us, 
then it totally does away with the new age thinking of this, that there's a good spark in each and every one of you. And you're a little snowflake. And there's no other one like you. And you just need to tap into that little snowflake inside you. And when you do, you'll flutter with snowflakes. And you'll be able to end your problem. Jesus demolishes that idea because he says it's inside your heart. So if it's inside of us, then we need something outside of us to save us. And Asaph says that he goes into the sanctuary of God. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. When our third child, uh, child Piper, was born, um, we, we had to stay in the hospital for, for a, a number of days more than our other kids because she was born and she was born jaundice. And so um, they're born kind of yellowy with a tan type of a thing. You know what I mean? And um, she had to stay. We have a picture of, of, of what this looks like. She had to stay underneath the billy light is what they call it there in the hospital. And it's heartbreaking for a parent because that glass is separating you and they got all this stuff on them. And you're like, I, I just hate that thing. But, but listen, listen, don't miss this. There was something inside Piper that was not processing her blood properly. So the cure was to put her under something from outside to heal something that was inside of her. Asaph said that I was riddled with envy until I went into the sanctuary of God and I saw the gospel. I saw God's holiness and His righteousness and His beauty and His purity. And being in that environment, just like my daughter was underneath that light, and that light did something to shine into her to heal the problem in which she had, is the same way that when we come into the gathering and we sit under the Word of God and we come to the table, that the Gospel is this, that the Gospel is something from outside of you that saves you. And it's Jesus Christ Envy ends where the gospel begins. And then the second thing is this. Envy ends when you see God's grace as bigger than your own sin. Envy ends when you see God's grace as bigger than your own sin. Because look at what he does there in the text. Love you guys. Our Crossroads guys always have to leave early. Love you guys. Look at verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now, look at verse 23. Here it is. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Now, question. When Asaph was throwing a fit like a little baby, whining on the floor, thrashing around, saying, those people get to do that, and I don't get to do this. Those people get to have sex before marriage, and I don't get to do this. Those people get to live their life this way, and I don't get to do this. And he was like a little kid, kicking and crying and whining and boohooing and doing all that stuff. Where was God? Right beside him. The whole time. You know what I wrote in the margin of my Bible in verse 23? Grace. <laughs> Grace. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> and how humbling is it to know that while you're whining and complaining and comparing and doubting and even saying this, God, following you is a waste of time. He sits right next to you. And Asaph says, you held my hand. You held my hand. I was brutish and I was arrogant towards you. But you held my hand. Listen, do you understand how humbling it is in that moment? My brother one time was going through a crisis of faith in his life and was involved in a church down in Dallas, Texas. And he went and he had seen some things happen. The, the pastor that was there at the time had 
stolen money and ran off with a young lady and it had just devastated the church. And what was horrible for my brother is he was like just kind of starting his continuation and his journey and his faith again. And then this happened and he loved the pastor. And the associate pastor was there and just all of this responsibility was thrusted upon him. And my brother Josh met with him and he said, listen, bro, I got to go. It's nothing against you. I just, I'm like disillusioned in this thing, man. Like I trusted I loved, I'm heartbroken. And then my brother Josh said these words. I just got to go find God, man. I got to go find God. And the associate pastor wept and, and, and hugged Josh. And right before Josh left the office, the associate pastor said these words. Josh, just turn around. Because he's been there the whole time. Do you understand that this is the God we serve? Why why do you need to be envious? He's been with you the whole time. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he will never forsake us. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's there with us, listen, even when we're throwing fits. But when you understand where the gospel begins, and listen to me, listen, I know that we're Western Americans and praise God for the rights that we have and praise God for the country that we live in. But listen to me, if you demand your rights from God and if you fought for your rights with God, you would be in hell tonight. Because we have no rights. Grace isn't fair. That's why it's grace. You don't want fairness for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 51, 5, for I was born in iniquity and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, for you were dead in your trespasses and sin and you were hostile to God. And Colossians chapter 1 says that you were walking with sons of disobedience. Those are your rights. And he gives us grace. And when you understand, listen, that there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you, that will change your life. Envy ends where the gospel begins. And envy ends when we understand that God's grace is bigger than our sin. And then the last thing is this. Envy ends when you value the eternal over the temporal. When you value the eternal over the temporal. Look at what he says in verse 25. You see, we just walk through the verses here, okay? The points come from the text. Verse 25, Whom in I, who do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at verse 27. For behold, those are far from God shall perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. This is what Asaph knows. Asaph knows that there is a day that is coming. Listen, this thing is going somewhere, man. And there will be a day that when those clouds split and when that trumpet sounds, and as Ephesians says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you listen to me. Nobody gets away from anything. And Jesus says that the day in which he returns, that people would rather cry out that rocks smash their brains then they should have to see the wrath of Jesus Christ there is a judgment day coming and when you see that in light of all of this you understand that life is but a vapor and that none of these things matter listen I worked at a funeral home for seven years and I never once attached a U-Haul to the end of a hearse 
I never buried anybody with anything. And we need to get far beyond our little ideas of heaven that when I get up there, I'm going to drink a cold one with the big man in the sky. That's the most dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to lay face down because you're not even going to behold the glory of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, that the angels fly around and they cover their face with wings and they fly around with the rest. And all of eternity, they've always said, holy, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who made heaven and earth. And when you get that into focus into your life, and when you see your friend drive through town in a new truck, envy dies because you understand you will be in a place of eternal worth and eternal glory. Your 501k, it fades. And so does retirement. The band's going to come up and I want to close with this. I had the opportunity to spend time, um, oftentimes in my profession, with people who are, um, lack of a better term, dying. They are dying. Um, I go to hospital rooms. I stand next to beds. I'm in the room when they breathe their last. And any time that I'm around until they're coherent, I love asking questions. I love praying. Because listen, listen to me. Listen to me. When the word hospice is used, you could give a rip about your retirement. Okay? And I had the privilege and opportunity to ask a man who had traveled, who had built many things and had many accomplishments in life. A successful man, a handsome man, who had done many things. And I asked him, I said, What's it about? What's it about? This thing, man. I'm a young man. I've got three kids, five and under. Sometimes I'm just so stressed with changing diapers and taking the trash out. The lawn's got to be mowed. The bills have to be paid. I said, what's this thing about? And he looked me in the eyes. He said, life's in the little things. I'm not taking any of this. I'm not taking anybody with me. idea is this today. The way that you end envy is experiencing the greatness of God found in Jesus Christ. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything. What does the Apostle Paul say? He lists all of his accomplishments. I was a Jew. I was born on this day. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a student among students. I memorized all of this scripture. I taught. I did this. I did all of this. I was a Roman citizen. I was born a Jew. I did all of these things. But all of these things I count as a loss to know the surpassing greatness and the power of his resurrection. Because that's the only thing I got. And that's the only thing I'm taking from here. And it's the only thing I'm taking on the other side and if you live in envy you will never know the joy of your life so what do we need to do the first thing is this is you need to search your heart listen to me you need to be honest today and say oh my god I'm an envious person I'm a jealous envious person I can never celebrate other people because I'm constantly thinking about myself. And then you need to look to Jesus. You need to look to Jesus who gave everything up for us. Listen, how can you be prideful and envious when you're staring at the foot of the cross? But it was my sin that held him there. That should have been me. Thing is this. Rest in grace today. Because look at me. When you come to these tables today and you see this body broken and this blood shed, you have everything. You have everything. Envy dies here at these tables. And I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul says these words. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will He not also with them graciously give us all things? 
all things. Listen, you can die today and have all things if you have Christ. And I beg you today and I beseech you upon the authority of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do not know Christ, if you're unsure if you know Christ, come to him today. Come to him, know him today. Because if you die, you will perish. You will perish and you don't know love and you don't know joy and this will rot your bones. But you can rest in the grace and the freedom of the God of the universe saying, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And with that, all earthly things can perish. And I know that I'll behold his face in glory forever. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And God, search our hearts. God, envy is serious. You say that it rots our bones and steals our joy. Asaph is a believer. Everybody struggles with this in this room today. Non-believers and believers alike. God, I pray that you would save someone today. That they would come to a saving knowledge of you, Jesus. And God, I pray that there's a believer in here who confesses, just like Asa. I was envious. Oh, and when I tried to discern it, it was a wearisome task. But I went into the sanctuary of God and I beheld the beauty of the gospel. May we experience your greatness today. May the envy end. We pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Would you stand where you're at and come forward and partake in communion?